song for this message series. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time or if you've been away for a while, uh, we're in the middle of a message series on the book of Revelation that I'm calling The End of the World. And uh, I think this is especially, that song is especially good for today because uh, you need to leave here today knowing that you feel fine. That's kind of where we're going today. And if you've been reading ahead along with me each week, you'll know that this week we're talking about the judgments of God on the earth. This is kind of scary stuff, but uh, if you know Jesus, you're going to feel fine when you leave here today, all right? So uh, it's all good stuff. Week one of Revelation, I shared with you that uh, you might be surprised as you start studying Revelation. Lots of people believe that Revelation is all doom and gloom and scary and and all this kind of stuff. And and I shared with you that week that really Revelation is all about Jesus. That's the point. And there's two questions that each one of us must answer. Who is Jesus Christ and what is my responsibility to him? And if we keep those things in focus, Revelation doesn't have to be doom and gloom and frightening and and all of that kind of stuff. But that being said, today we're getting to the doom and gloom part of Revelation. And uh, we're going to be talking about the the seals and the trumpets and the bowls and the way that God judges the earth. And as I was studying this week, I have to be honest with you, it it kind of felt like a recurring nightmare, you know, that, that some of us have. Have you ever had a recurring nightmare? Anybody? At all? Okay, most of us probably have. When I was a kid, I had this recurring nightmare that happened over and over and over again. I was raised in Great Falls, and uh, those of you that have been to Great Falls or grew up there, there's a big refinery right on the river, a big oil refinery right on the river. And, and as a kid, that, that place was so spooky and scary, and there's all these smokestacks and pipes going everywhere and great big giant vats of oil that in my little uh, pre-adolescent brain just seemed to be like full of boiling oil, just gurgling and bubbling and all that kind of stuff. And, and my folks had some friends that lived north of that refinery a little ways, and a couple of times a week they'd go over to their house to play cards And my sister and I would invariably fall asleep while my parents were playing cards. And my dad would pick us up and carry us to the car. And then we would drive by that refinery in that weird between sleep and awake state, you know. And then I'd have this recurring dream. And in my dream, it was always the same thing. I was being forced to cross one of those giant vats of boiling oil on a little plank. And, and I don't know what it was that was forcing me, but I had to cross. And the plank wasn't very wide, and I was afraid I was going to fall, so I didn't want to walk. And it, it was too narrow to crawl. And so, like children often do, I chose to roll across the plank. That's, in my dream, that was the preferred method of motion. I don't know. And rolling, and then the terror of falling into the boiling oil. And it, I had that same dream over and over and over. And, and, and I don't know, I have a friend who had scary dreams about clowns. Anybody dream about clowns? A lot of people, they're, they're scared. My, my wife hates mimes. And I'm not really sure why she hates mimes. She hasn't dreamed about mimes. She just hates, they don't know when to stop. Yeah. Kind of like a recurring nightmare. They just don't know when to stop. Uh, Sometimes some of us have dreams about screaming, right, in your dream, and you're yelling, and you can't get any words out, or your voice just goes silent. Have you had that dream? 
or falling and you never hit bottom, all those kinds of things. I was, I was just thinking about that when I was studying the book of Revelation this week because when we start reading about these seals and the trumpets and the bowls and God's judgment, it just goes on and on and on and on. Anybody else feel that way as you were reading this week? It's a lot to comprehend. And so today I hope that by the time we end here today that you will feel a little bit better and that I don't just uh, completely scare you to death. Although this is kind of scary stuff. If you've got your Bibles this morning, you can open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6 with me. uh, And uh, I encourage you to follow along. Not everything will be up on the screen. If you haven't been with us, Uh, I just want to give you an overview of what we've been reading this past week from Revelation 6, 7, 8, 9, and chapters 15 and 16. And I'm kind of a visual person, so it helps me uh, to see things laid out. So I've got a couple of charts for you. In our first gathering, I saw lots of people just scribbling down charts, and you can find these stuff these things online. You don't. I, I'm not expecting you to uh, write all this stuff down unless it's helpful for you. But uh, for today's purpose, I just want you to visualize what's happening in these six chapters of the book of Revelation that's dealing with God's judgments on the earth. And so what we have in, in chapter six is seven seals. And to put it into context a little bit, we need to rewind to the early earlier chapters of the book of Revelation, uh, chapter uh, 5 in particular, in which God, seated on his throne, had a scroll with seven seals on it. And uh, our small group members were talking about that, that scroll with seals, and they created this prop. Isn't it a very nice prop here? Seven seals. And John tells us in Revelation chapter 5 that no one in heaven and on earth was found worthy to open the scroll and to remove its seals. And then the lion of the tribe of Judah stepped forward, Jesus, stepped forward and he looked like a lamb who had been slaughtered and he was found to be worthy to open the seals. And when we were talking about that story a couple of weeks ago, that's kind of where we left it. And now in chapter 6, we find the Lamb, who is Jesus, we find him opening the seals. And so uh, if you've read it, you found that as Jesus began opening these seven seals, these tremendous and frightening things began happening on the earth. As seal one was opened, there was a white horse. Seal two had a red horse. Seal three had a black horse. And seal four had a pale horse. These are the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse that uh, even if you've never read the Bible, you've probably heard about these four horsemen. And uh, they they represent deception and war and famine and death. And as these first four seals are revealed... These are the things that are happening on the earth. And then Jesus goes on to open the fifth seal. And the Bible says that there were souls of martyrs under the altar in heaven that were shouting, How long, O Lord? These are people who came to faith in Jesus during the tribulation period. And they were martyred for their faith. And they are crying out for justice to the Lord. That's in the fifth seal, and then Jesus opens the sixth seal, and there we read uh, an incredible description 
of the beginning of the wrath of God. And if you've got your Bibles open, I'd like you to follow along with me as I read about this sixth seal, starting at verse 12 of Revelation chapter 6. Here's what we read. John says, I watched as the Lamb, Jesus, broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth, and the moon became as red as blood. And then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree shaken by a strong wind. The sky was rolled up like a scroll, and all of the mountains and islands were moved from their places. Catastrophic events on planet earth. And then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and every free person all hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now that verse is significant because what we see here is that there is a global understanding at this point in time that what is happening on planet Earth is the judgment of God. Okay? Uh, I I don't know exactly how it's going to happen. I I don't know if asteroids are going to hit the Earth. I don't know if those kinds of things are going to happen. But there's going to be no natural explanation for these events. Everyone on planet Earth, according to these two verses I just read, will acknowledge that it's God Almighty who is bringing these judgments on the Earth. Incredible. We live in a day and age in which atheism kind of reigns supreme, right? Well, I wouldn't say it reigns supreme, but there's a lot of people that just don't believe that God exists. Okay? Evidently, there's going to be no question at this point in time whether or not God exists because people are going to be terrified of the disasters he is bringing on the earth. Does that make sense? And then I want you to see this last verse that we're going to read here. Uh, verse 17, they say, follow us and hide us. And then they say, for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to survive? Here at the sixth seal, at the sixth seal, (laughs) uh, the day of the wrath of God begins. Then if you're reading in Revelation in chapter 8, you see that there's silence in heaven, and then the Lamb opens the seventh seal. Now all of these seals are consecutive. They're not happening all at the same time. This is happening in a consecutive manner in time. And the seventh seal is the beginning of, of the trumpet judgments. And when those trumpet judgments are revealed, we see all kinds of things happen. A a third of the earth is burned. A third of the sea becomes blood. A third of the rivers become bitter. A third of the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. The fifth one, locusts torment for five months. Sixth, a third of the people on earth are killed. And then the seventh one, a big monumental event takes place there again. And we hear in heaven, the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord. That's significant because up until that time, there has been a kingdom on planet earth. I'll be talking about this next week when we talk about Antichrist and the beast and all of those characters, the tribulation period. There's been an earthly government that has controlled planet earth. 
when the seventh trumpet is sounded, the governmental power shifts to the power of Almighty God. And then, immediately after that, part of the seventh trumpet is now the seven bowls. And the seven bowls are especially frightening. Let me, let me talk about them briefly with you. The first one, malignant sores come on all of those who have the mark of the beast. The second one, the sea becomes blood. The third one, the rivers and springs become blood. In many ways, this echoes the plagues that Moses brought onto Egypt when God was delivering the Jews out of Egypt. If you've ever read that story in the book of Genesis. Uh, in the fourth bowl, people are scorched by the sun. In the fifth bowl, the, king, the beast's kingdom is plunged into darkness as God vanquishes him. In the sixth bowl, the Euphrates is dried up and all the armies of the earth gather for this mythical, well, it's not mythical, but this uh, uh, famous battle of Armageddon. And then in the seventh bowl, it is finished and Babylon itself is judged. Now, a lot of stuff going on in there, and I don't have time today to go through every detail and explain to you what it all means, but in case you haven't really gotten a visualization yet of what this is going to be like, I want you to feel it cinematically. So take a look at this. Now, that's not really what Revelation looks like. That's just a video I found on YouTube. But you get, you get the feeling, right? that this is going to be a global disaster as God pours his wrath out upon the earth. Now, you might be wondering why in the world this is going to happen. And I had a conversation right after our first gathering this morning, uh, and somebody was asking me about this. And I want you to know that uh, when God is angry... It's not just because he gets ticked off and throws a temper tantrum. That's not in the nature of God. His wrath has a very specific purpose. And these seals and these trumpets and bowls have a purpose that we need to understand. And if you're taking notes this morning, you can jot these two ideas down. Two purposes for these judgments on the earth. And the first one is this. God's purpose here is to hinder the Antichrist's empire from persecuting the saints. Last week I talked about the fact that during this time of tribulation on the earth, there will be people coming to receive Jesus and they will experience salvation just like many of us in this room have in this lifetime. And, and the gospel will be preached. Salvation will be available. Many people, Jews and Gentiles, will come to know Jesus and, and receive salvation. And in these judgments, they are going to be protected. And God is preventing the Antichrist, who will be persecuting Christians with, with unrelenting power. God will be protecting them from his power. And then secondly... The second reason for this display uh, of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls is to cause unbelievers to cry out for salvation. Now, it's remarkably different than it is now. Uh, nowadays, we focus in on the forgiveness of Jesus and the love of God and, and grace and all those kinds of things. But one of the things we're going to see during this period of time of tribulation is that the power and the amazing judgment of God is going to cause people to say to themselves, you know, I could align with the Antichrist 
or I could align with Almighty God. If I'm smart, I'm going to see Antichrist is going to lose, so I'm going to come to God. I want to be on his side, right? And they're going to be living through these incredible judgments on the earth, and part of the purpose is for God's power to motivate people to come to salvation. But here's the question that I want to address this morning that many people ask me from time to time. Why is God so mad? Why is God so mad? We're really not comfortable with the wrath of God. In fact, uh, if, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you probably haven't heard very many messages in church about the wrath of God. Let me tell you, I don't like talking about the wrath of God. This stuff is scary, right? And I think most of us are uncomfortable with it. Uh, In fact, I think we prefer the verses in the Bible that say God is love, right? And we like this picture of Jesus better than the YouTube video where everything's getting burned up and exploding, right? This is so much easier for us to comprehend. But here's the problem. God is not a two-dimensional personality. God is not a two-dimensional personality. Let me illustrate it this way. A lot of times when you're getting to know someone, when you're developing a relationship with someone, you discover aspects of their personality that seem to be contradictory or they seem to be incongruous with one another. For instance, some of you might be very surprised to know that although I have many extrovert personality traits, although I like to be in front of you teaching, I like to sing, I like to lead worship, I like an audience, uh, what I don't like is large crowds of people, okay? So as long as I'm here talking to you, I'm okay. As soon as I have to get into the crowd and mingle, I get all sweaty and hot and nervous, okay? And uh, somebody asked me after the first gathering, I I don't believe that's really how you are. And I I said, um, just to prove it, I between the services, I went and hid in the bathroom for a little while. Because I just, you know, I just, mm. So uh, you might be surprised by that, right? But, but see, I'm not two-dimensional. Everything you see here does not sum up who I am. And God is not two-dimensional either. And so we talk about his love, but we also have to understand that he is holy. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. I brought a pole here today. Brian, would you come and help me? We have two Brians sitting right next to one another. Jump up, Brian, would you? All right, what I'd like you to do, Brian, to the best of your ability, would you make this pole stand vertically, perfectly vertically, using only one piece of string? You're ruining my illustration. You're in the wrong line of work. You should be an engineer. You knew exactly what to do. <laughs> okay, the point is, if he's pulling this, walk away a little ways, okay? And, and you can see that it really is almost impossible unless you're, I never, I never knew you could just push it straight down. I am in awe. <laughs> but if we've got two pieces of string, okay, and, uh, and we're pulling in opposite directions, we can make that pull stand vertically, right? And this is kind of like the, the, the personality or the character of God. 
if we focus in only on his love, the pole is going to fall over, right? But if we understand that God's love is held in tension with his holiness, we have it in balance and we see a more complete picture, okay? Thank you, Brian. Should have had the other Brian come up. I'm never calling on someone with the name Brian again. (laughs) Let me talk to you a little bit about the holiness of God. Revelation chapter 3, in the letters to the churches that Jesus was sending, uh, part of the message of the church in Philadelphia said this. This is the message from the one who is holy and true. Revelation chapter 4, you might remember that the cherubim and the 24 elders are falling down before the one seated on the throne, and they are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty. 1 John 1 verse 5, in a book that is so consumed with the love of God, says this, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. There's no darkness. There's no sin. There's no compromise. There is nothing that would bring a blemish to the character of God whatsoever. He is absolutely perfect and without flaw. This is who he is. But these things are in tension with one another, and uh, theologians like me, we have to kind of make them fit together. So let me give you a few statements that I hope will help you understand how the holiness of God and the love of God exist in tension, all right? If you're taking notes, you can jot these things down. Here's the first thing. What you need to know about God's holiness is that it cannot tolerate sin. God's holiness cannot tolerate sin. And this holiness, this intolerance of sin, results in God's wrath against sin. Okay? God's holiness results in his wrath against sin. But on the other side of the pole that is being held in tension is God's love. And God's love provided atonement for sin through the sacrifice of Jesus. Okay? And that atonement provides appeasement for his wrath. Let me talk about appeasement for just a second. Michael, who was playing bass for us this morning, Sat on the front row, both gatherings. What a good guy, front row guy. So I'll pick on you again. If Michael was accused of a crime and had to stand before a judge, and the judge said, Michael, you are guilty as charged, and as a penalty, as a judgment against you, we're going to fine you $50,000. Okay? That'd be a pretty stiff fine for any of us to have to face, right? And Michael, do you have $50,000 laying around that you could pay the government? (laughs) Okay, but but 
you don't have $50,000. So what's he going to do? He's going to go and rot in jail or pay the fine, right? Because that's his judgment. And before the law, he has to pay the fine. But if Michael's dad comes and says, listen, I will pay the $50,000 for you. And if his dad does that, is Michael going to go to jail? No, Michael's going to be free because somebody paid the price. Okay, This is what God, through Jesus, did for us. The Bible says that the penalty for sin, for every one of us in this room, every person on planet Earth, the penalty for sin is death. We have to pay, somebody has to pay the penalty for sin. Or we face the wrath of God, which is death. But God loves us. He can't stand for us to pay that penalty. And so he sent his son Jesus. And Jesus paid the ultimate death penalty. And, and, and we are forgiven. And we don't face God's wrath. Good news, isn't it? So the question you might have along with me is, where do I stand? Where do I stand before God? If you're like me, I sin all the time. I'm sorry? Well, I am redeemed, but I blow it too. Do you ever blow it, Patty? Yeah. I blow it. You blow it. Sometimes I blow it every day. Where do I stand? Do I face the wrath of God? One of the best verses in the Bible I want to share with you today. Every one of you ought to memorize this verse. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10 says this. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Would you read that out loud with me? For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Why? Because our destiny is not this wrath of God. All of these seals and trumpets and bowls that someday will be poured out upon the earth, friends, that's not for us unless we turn our back on the salvation of Jesus Christ. Our destiny, the plan God has for us, is salvation, not his wrath. So the point that I hope every one of you will leave this room with today is that God has not destined us for wrath. God has not destined us for wrath. Patty, redeemed. Yep. Not wrath, redeemed. Salvation, forgiveness, eternal life. That's our destiny. I thought you'd all be standing and shouting by now. Or at least waving a hanky or something. I hate it when I have to ask you for affirmation. You're with me, right? No, you're good. So let me give you three next steps and then... We're just going to spend some time worshiping God in his holiness. Musicians, you can go ahead and come if you want to. Here's a few next steps. Number one is this. I want to encourage all of us today to cultivate a healthy fear of God. 
cultivate a healthy fear of God. This is important because we live, we live in a culture in which uh, human intellect and, uh, and, and our own moral superiority has really been elevated above the holiness of God. Uh, one of the things that I've been reading periodically on the internet, uh, there, there's a lot of thinkers and bloggers, writers of all different kinds, who are saying that the atonement teaching of Christianity is just divine child abuse. That's how they're describing it. That Jesus coming as the Son of God to sacrifice his life is divine child abuse. And, and what's happening in our culture is, is we live in this world of political correctness in which it's not okay to be angry. And the word wrath is something that in particular is unacceptable in our culture. And the idea of God judging the earth, or worse yet, allowing his son to die in somebody else's place, that doesn't sit well in our politically correct culture. And so some thinkers are saying it's divine child abuse, and if that's who God is, I don't want to have anything to do with him. Well, listen, they're misunderstanding the holiness of God. You see, I didn't make the rules. God, who created you and created me, made the rules. The Bible says, can the created thing ask the maker, why did you make me this way? It's so arrogant for us to say, God, we don't like your plan, so we're going to reject you. Listen, it's not divine child abuse. It's this idea that God is holy, and he loves us, and he made a way for us. And we need to wrap our minds around what the holiness of God looks like. And then our second next step is to receive the love of Jesus. I didn't mention the two words propitiation and expiation, did I yet? Okay. Uh, back when I had you write down about the appeasement of God's wrath, there's two words that go with that word appeasement. It's not in your notes, but you could jot these down if you're interested in them. There's two theological terms. One is propitiation, P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-O-N. I think I got that right. Propitiation. The other one is expiation, E-X-P-I-A-T-I-O-N. Appeasement, propitiation, expiation, they all have shades of meaning that are a little bit different, but they all talk about what's happening between the wrath of God and the love of God through Jesus Christ. If you really want to take some next steps and wrap your mind around the holiness of God and how he did this, do a little bit of research on those terms. In fact, uh, Shoni is going to be posting a link on the Connect Church app and also on the Connect Church Facebook page with a link to a blog that I came across on Friday written by R.C. Sproul, who is one of my favorite authors. I don't agree with everything he writes, but he's really a great author. And he wrote a, a blog about propitiation and expiation and why it's important for us to know. So it would be a good place for you to start if you want to go a little bit deeper. And that will be up. I'm, I think Shoni probably already has that up. So cultivate a healthy fear of God. Receive the love of Jesus. And then thirdly, as I've said every week, would you go for your blessing with me this week? Revelation 1.3 says you're blessed. If you read the book of Revelation, if you listen to the book of Revelation, and if you obey the book of Revelation, and if you want 
To go after your blessing, I want to invite you to read chapters 13 and 14. And next week, we're going to talk about some of the most interesting parts of this book, which is uh, the beast and the Antichrist and all that stuff. The week after that, we'll talk about the second coming. Woohoo! <laughs> then the millennial reign of Christ, and then the new heavens and the new earth. That's kind of where we're going. Sound like a good plan? I'm glad you're with me. Can we stand and worship for a little bit, and then we'll pray together.